This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today we have Faith bringing us the story of Hedy Lamar. Take it away, Faith. Famous Hollywood actress Hedy Lamarr was born in Austria in 1914. By the mid-1940s, she became the world's first superstar in Hollywood. She was known for her striking beauty and her at times scandalous movie appearances. Pulitzer Prize winner Richard Rhodes wrote a book titled Hedy's Folly, The Life and Breakthrough Inventions of Hedy Lamarr, The Most Beautiful Woman in the World. This book helps unpack the life of a woman that perhaps we thought we knew. Here is Richard Rhodes. When she walked into a room, she actually stopped conversations. People would be startled by her appearance. The sad tragedy of her life in a way, though, was that she was also highly intelligent. And since she was so strikingly beautiful, uh, hardly anyone ever noticed her intelligence. It wasn't uh, factored into the kind of role she was given in movies, where she usually played some conventionally beautiful woman falling in and out of love with a handsome leading man. I mean, the tragedy of this woman was that She was, as she pointed out, more than a pretty face. She liked to say sarcastically, I can tell you how to be glamorous. All you have to do is stand still and look stupid. (laughs) Growing up in Vienna, her parents were wealthy. Her father was a Jewish banker and and an athlete. her mother was had trained as a concert pianist, and she grew up in what was a really multicultural and multi-religious uh, community in Vienna just around the time and after the time of the First World War. So a very cultured world, Vienna was, was just one of the centers of culture in those days, and particularly of theater. And she fell in love with theater. Uh, she was a good actress. She was a, she was smart, and she learned to play roles, and much more than the roles she later would play in American films ever tested her for. She also became kind of the catch of the day in in Austria, exactly because of her beauty on the one hand and her fame on the other. And the second richest man in Austria decided he wanted her for his arm piece and courted her. His name was Fritz Mendel. This relationship was doomed from the start. He had pursued her for her beauty, and because of that, he also was terribly jealous and insecure, making him quite a horrible husband. I mean, he had maids picking up the extension whenever she was talking with friends on the phone and had her followed and so forth. He was quite certain that she was uh, cheating on him which, as far as I understand, she was not. So, on the one hand, it was a glamorous life uh, with with castles and uh, beautiful apartments in Vienna. uh, But on the other hand, she said one time she felt as if she was in a golden cage. 
because she really was locked away. It was now 1934, and pretty soon the Nazis would take over Austria. Hetty wanted to get out of Austria to pursue her dream of becoming a famous Hollywood actress. Of course, her jealous husband thought it was in bad taste for her to be an actress, so she decided to leave him. The truth is, as I found when I researched the newspapers in New York and in, and in Vienna, that it was quite a public divorce, as one might imagine. So off she went, first to Paris and then to London, and uh, she had her jewelry to pawn to put together a kind of nest egg. It happened at that particular point in time that Metro-Golden-Mayer, Louis B. Mayer, the director, was in London and traveling around Europe, buying up the contracts of Jewish artists who understood that it was time to get out of Europe uh, ahead of the Nazi uh, attack on the Jews. He was able to sign, get people to sign contracts at fairly low wages with his studio for up to eight years at a time. So he really was kind of buying job lots of European actors. Hetty wasn't going to be conned into uh, letting that happen to her. So when he made an offer to her after she met him in London, she basically said, no, that's not nearly sufficient and walked out. That intrigued him. And then she found out what ship he was sailing back to the United States on, booked passage on the same ship, made sure he saw her playing deck tennis with handsome young men on the ship. And by the time they arrived in New York, she had a contract for a pretty good weekly salary uh, for only three years and a commitment to make a certain number of films. So she was launched. She had charmed the director of MGM into hiring her for the price that she wanted. There's no doubt that while her beauty at times was a burden, at other times, she used it as a tool to get what she needed. She got to the States and soon started her new career as an actress. And you've been listening to Richard Rhodes, and he's the author of Hedy's Folly, the life and breakthrough inventions of Hedy Lamar, the most beautiful woman in the world, and what a story we're hearing so far. In Austria, seeming to lead a beautiful and wealthy life and rich life. Turns out she felt like she was in a golden cage. Hitler is storming the barricades, what little there were in terms of barricades in Austria. And my goodness, fleeing to Europe, there is Louis Meyer. Well, he's going all over Europe, just buying up contracts really cheap because Jews were trying to find their way to America, Jewish actors and actresses, Jewish talent. And my goodness, we learned right away what a tough negotiator Hedy Lamar is. Not eight years, no. Down to three years, she whittles Louis B. Meyer. And for more money, too. When we come back... This remarkable life, this remarkable American life, Hetty Lamar's life continues here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with Our American Stories, and we've been listening to the story of a famous actress from the 1940s, Hedy Lamarr. She had just arrived from Europe and was beginning her acting career in the States. Her first film with MGM was with French-American actor Charles Boyer. We pick up with author Richard Rhodes describing Hedy's breakout into Hollywood. There's a moment in the film, and it was really Hedy's debut in Hollywood, where she steps out of a doorway into, into a lovely kind of sunlight, and she burst on the world as this extraordinarily beautiful woman, and really became a star overnight as a result. So from there she made a few more films with uh, Metro Golden Mayer. She, like so many people who emigrated to the United States out of that terrible world of, of pre-World War II Europe, was immensely grateful to the country for taking her in. And she became a citizen around, I think, 1942 or 43, after she had spent the requisite time living in the United States. While she loved her new home, the United States, and was grateful to be where she was, her heart still went out to those in Europe. During the Great Blitz of London, when the Germans began bombing London relentlessly, the English moved their children out of London to the countryside, or in large numbers they were shipped to Canada. This was the first time in history that countries were bombing cities and civilian areas. In attempts to save them, the British sent their children away. Hetty one day reading, following this in the newspapers, was horrified to read that, that uh, a shipload of children, one of the liners that was being used to transport them, had been torpedoed by a German submarine and had sunk with, I think, 82 children were killed in that particular assault. By then, she had done something really quite unusual for Hollywood. She didn't drink. She didn't like to go to loud parties. But in order to fill her time between movies, she had to find something, some other way to occupy herself, and she took up inventing. She, in the course of her life, invented, uh, let's see, a little box to attach to your Kleenex box to have a place to put your used Kleenex. She invented uh, some new kind of stoplight. She invented a chair on a pivot that could be swung into a shower so that someone who couldn't stand up in the shower could take a shower and then swing back out in the chair and dry themselves off. So she was kind of a classic inventor in that she had no technical training particularly, but she had a way of looking at the world that, that asked, how can you fix this problem, this large or small problem that exists? So when she read about the German submarines torpedoing all these English ships with particularly the ones with children on them, and realized that this was, this was Austria and Germany were, was, was where she came from, and that it was horrible that, that, that her background should somehow be tied in with this terrible business of killing civilians. She decided she would figure out a way to make it more possible than it was at the time to attack and destroy a submarine. Unfortunately, the torpedoes of the day didn't have any real guidance systems on them. You would kind of 
move as close as you could and aim the torpedo in the general direction of the submarine, or, or rather where the submarine would be when you thought the torpedo would meet the submarine, and then you'd launch. And uh, almost all of the torpedoes missed their targets. So she thought, well, there must be a way to guide a torpedo. And the way she thought of was using radio. A plane or a surface ship with a radio transmitter could transmit a signal to a port torpedo that was probably, let's say, towing an end, a wire antenna behind it on the surface to pick up the signal. And the signal could direct the, uh, the rudder on the torpedo left or right and guide the torpedo in real time to the submarine and blow up the submarine and therefore pre prevent the children from being killed. While the United States had not yet entered the war, there was an organization set up where inventors could send their wartime invention ideas to the government. There were something like 300,000 submissions in the course of the Second World War, uh, unfortunately almost none of which ever got developed into a workable instrument. That's where Hetty turned to find support for her idea of a radio-controlled torpedo. Now, she also had found a collaborator. This was another colorful figure from the 10s and 20s of the century named George Antile, an American composer of avant-garde music and a uh, concert pianist. Antile had been working in Europe for about 10 years during the time when Hetty was living there and, and, and met her again when she came to Hollywood and he had retreated to Hollywood to write uh, music for films in order to make a living. They met at a dinner party with some friends and immediately bonded over the fact that they were both very interested in the European war. Hetty broached the idea of her, of her torpedo uh, Antio was immediately interested. The question became, what kind of radio control system could you use? There were no bio, no, no uh, digital chips in those days. What would actually tell the torpedo how to direct itself? Antio's music had featured a number of compositions, some of them quite notorious, uh, using player pianos. And a player piano is operated by a scroll of paper with holes in it that rolls past uh, a vacuum uh, pipe. And where there's a hole, air is sucked in, and that triggers the mechanism that uh, makes a key activate on the piano. So Antile imagined that you could probably make a miniature version of one of these scrolls. You could make them out of something more durable than paper, obviously. And that that device with its, in fact, he actually gave the scroll that they used in their model, 88 holes, rather like the keys on a piano. So they had then Hetty's original idea for a radio-controlled torpedo. They wanted one, however, that couldn't be jammed by a radio signal because if somebody was on the, on the enemy side was picking up radio signals and they heard the signal being transmitted, from the ship to the torpedo. They could, by producing a sound on the same frequency, basically jam the signal. So how do you solve that problem? Well, there Hetty got her idea from one of the world's first uh, remote control boxes that had ever been used. She bought a very expensive 
radio, and radios in those days were the sizes of, of refrigerators. Uh, she bought a remote control for her living room radio that had was basically like the dial on an old dial phone, but it was a remote control. And she thought, well, something like that would work. And that's where the notion of having multiple frequencies with the signal jumping from frequency to frequency in a more or less random pattern would allow the transmitter to send a signal to the receiver in the torpedo uh, that would jump around all over 88 different frequencies and that no one could follow fast enough with a jamming signal. So the signal could go through, it couldn't be jammed. Here was a really great idea. They put it all together the, with the help of a, a physicist specialist in electronics who was loaned to them by the National Inventors Council, the organization I mentioned that was there to make these inventions possibly useful to the government. So obviously the National Inventors Council thought this was a worthy project, and, and indeed it was. It probably would have worked very well. But when they took it to the Navy, the obvious place to take it once you had worked out the basic ideas and had a blueprint for an invention, which, which by the way, she and George Antile, Hetty and George then patented. It was patented under Hetty's maiden name, which at that time was Markey. So the patent was assigned to uh, Hedvig Markey and George Antile. And under that name, it was, it was given to them as a protection for their invention. They then donated this patent to the U.S. Navy. And you've been listening to Richard Rhodes, the author of the definitive biography of Hedy Lamarr, grateful that she escapes pre-war Europe and the devastation that, well, occurs in London, a civilian city being bombed ruthlessly by the Nazis, and hearing of these ships being downed by Nazi submarines with children on board, well, rather than do what many actors and actresses do in their spare time, which is booze and party, not this one. She got busy inventing and trying to solve that problem. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, Hedy Lamarr's story, here on Our American Story. We continue with Our American Stories, and we're about to hear the final part of famous Hollywood actress Hedy Lamarr's story. We learned that Hedy was not only beautiful, but she was brilliant as well. Her and her composer friend George Antile had created this frequency-hopping spread-spectrum technology and then handed it over to the Navy. We return to Faith with the rest of the story. After passing it off to the Navy, the Navy stamped it top secret, and they didn't hear about it for a long time. Hetty went on to live her life. She had two children and ended up getting married a total of six times, the longest marriage lasting about seven years. After a little over a decade in the early 1950s, the idea for the radio-controlled torpedo was resurrected. The technology would soon prove itself to be incredibly useful 
When someone pulled it off the shelf and tossed it over to one of the many small engineering firms that, that the military keeps and maintains to, to develop ideas. And the engineer who looked it over thought, wow, this is an interesting idea. Not for torpedoes, but for ship-to-ship -ship communications because it was something that couldn't be jammed. So the first application of the, the, the Marquis Antile invention came in the early 1950s in the form of a communications system between a plane and what's called a sonobuoy. A buoy, of course, is an object that's floating in the ocean. This particular buoy had a uh, sonar system on its underside, underwater, that would project sonar signals down through the water to listen for submarines. The inventor, who spoke of it later as a very successful invention, said this was a perfect way to, to make sure we had a, a signal that was secure between the plane that would fly over and pick up the communications from the sonoboy uh, and from the sonoboy itself. But pretty quickly, the Navy realized what an efficient way this was to talk from ship to ship. And the ships, for example, that were sent down to Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 were all uh, fitted with radio systems that used the patent that had been developed by Hedy Lamarr and George Antile. After that, it spread through the military. It became a pretty standard kind of communication systems. In the 1970s, uh, a lot of these World War II and era, that era military secret inventions were declassified under Jimmy Carter as a way of boosting uh, commercial development of these things. And this invention was picked up and used in some of the early car telephones, which of course preceded the kind of uh, cell phones we have now, but had a similar problem that was not privacy so much as the fact that if you had one car telephone talking to another car telephone on one frequency, within a particular a given city, there would only be about a hundred frequencies that you could use. That would mean that no more than a couple hundred cars could be talking to each other at the same time. And that obviously was not a commercially viable proposition. But if you could use this jumping frequency hopping, as Eddie called it, uh, which came to be called spread spectrum when they changed it slightly, but it was basically the same idea that you move a signal around among different frequencies. With that, thousands of cars could talk to each other at the same time. And no one would really hear more than an occasional, maybe almost inaudible blip if, if two of the signals crossed each other and, and blotted each other out. Then later on, it was used as the basis for what we call Bluetooth today and still is used in Bluetooth. It didn't become the basis for all of our cell phones, primarily because it was slightly more expensive to manufacture the system than it is for the one that's used in cell phones in the United States. So the manufacturers decided they'd rather go with something that wasn't quite as good actually, but that didn't cost them quite so much to make. There are, I think, cell phone systems elsewhere in the world, however, that do use the, the spread spectrum frequency hopping system. 
So what started out as a, as a laudable interest in trying to save the lives of English children uh, became then a patent that no one saw any use for for about 10 years. And then it became a superb communication system for the Navy. Then it spread through the military. Then it was used, I think the GPS system that we all operate on these days is, is another example of, of the Hedy Lamar George Antile spread spectrum system that communicates back and forth between the satellites overhead and our, all of our ground systems. And then eventually Bluetooth, which of course is just universal for short distance communication with all sorts of smart, smart equipment that we have around us today. Now the one piece left in the story is Hetty's lingering feeling as she got older that she had never been given proper credit for this invention. You know, she didn't want the money she had, had, had given the patent to the Navy, but she kind of felt that the very least that the nation could do for this gift she had given it was to, to thank her in some way. But of course, it had all been lost in the fact that her name on the patent wasn't Eddie Lamar, it was Hedwig Markey. A man in Colorado who was working on digital communication stumbled upon the Markey Antile patent and wondered who these people were and why their patent for this frequency-hopping spread-spectrum technology was just sitting there. Started looking into it and discovered to his delight that, that Hedvig Markey was Hedy Lamar. He had, like so many men of his age, had been absolutely, had a crush on Hedy when he was a teenager during the Second World War. And the idea that she might have not ever received credit for this really bothered him. All of this culminated in the inventors kind of getting together as, and agreeing that she should receive an award. And she did uh, in the early 1990s. Uh, it was the P Pioneer Freedom Foundation in San Francisco, which is devoted to recognizing the work of early digital pioneers. She obviously fit that category. She by then had had so many plastic surgeries that she really had ruined her face and she no longer went out in public. But she had a son who, who did and who came to San Francisco and received the award for her. She had made a tape for him, which he played to the, uh, to the, the conference. In it, she said, basically, thank you. I appreciate finally being recognized. But she had said to her son when he called her before this event and told her what was coming up, she, she had said in inimical Hollywood style, well, it's about time. Then her last dream in life, this was a person who really did accomplish the things she wanted to accomplish. Her last goal in life was to live to the turn of the century, which she did. She died in January of the year 2000 in her little house in Florida near her, near her, her children. Happy woman, no, she, I think she was never happy in love, but she did some extraordinary things in her life. Without Hedy Lamar, our radio technology would not be what it is today. I'm Faith, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Faith, and what a story. 
And my goodness, it wasn't the money she ever wanted, but getting that recognition by the Pioneer Freedom Foundation in San Francisco, a big deal to her, as it was to live to the turn of the century, another life's goal. And again, the book by Richard Rhodes is called Hetty's Folly, The Life and Breakthrough Inventions of Hetty Lamar, the most beautiful woman in the world. A grateful woman, grateful for the country that adopted her and saved her from the ravages of Nazism. Hetty Lamar's story here on Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories and we love telling stories about music here on the show and particularly about the stories of songs and this, well this is a good one. For a very brief period in 1979, The Knack looked like the future of rock and roll. It was the summer of the infamous disco demolition night at Comiskey Park in Chicago and many old school rock fans were ready to embrace a new band. Into this void stepped the neck and their song, My Sharona, which reached number six on Rolling Stone's top ten one-hit wonders of all time. Here's Greg Hengler with this story of a song. Even now, multiple decades after the biggest single of 1979, Sharona Elprin can't escape it. Almost any time someone hears my name, Miss Elprin says, they say, Oh, like my Sharona? And then they say, Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say that. You probably hear that all the time. They have no idea. She's not just a Sharona. She's the Sharona. The object of the Knack's bopping 1979 hit, My Sharona. The band's lead singer, Doug Figer, wrote the song's lustful lyrics about her when she was 17 and he was 26. Here's Doug Figer. It is a song that has a life of its own. It's not just a song. It's a cultural icon, if you will. The song became Billboard's number one single of 1979. Here's the next bassist, Prescott Niles. People do know the name of the band, but my experience is they go, yeah, um... You know, my Sharona. Oh yeah, it's my favorite song, and my kids, and my wife, and you know, and then all of a sudden everybody's got a story about my Sharona. My Sharona has never gone away. Ben Stiller built a memorable scene around the song in his 1994 directorial debut, Reality Bites, claiming it for Generation X. Nirvana did a grunge version, and the tune was reported to be on President George W. Bush's iPod in 2005. It's an odd kind of fame being the person in the song. Here's Sharona Elprin. People say, oh, like my Sharona. And very, very often I say, yes, I'm the same girl that the song was written about, and they can't believe it. <laughs> lead singer Doug Figer explains how my Sharona all started with lead guitarist Burton Avere. Burton had a drum figure that he played me. Now, he's since told me that it was only months 
but I seem to remember it was a couple of years before we actually wrote the song. He, you know, beat it out on his, on his legs, showed me this drum beat. It was before he told me, you know, what the riff was going to be even. He just said, I have this beat. Here's Burton. I'd been listening a lot to the second Elvis Costello album, and there was this, this, this appeal of this kind of demented approach to rock and roll, you know, just kind of balls to the wall and slamming. And I had this riff, and I brought it into one of our rehearsals, and I just started playing it. I didn't even say, you know, um, hey, here's something. I just started playing the riff, and uh, I was telling Bruce, I imagined. Um, no symbols, just kind of a, a tom snare kind of thing, and he came up with the riff. Here's drummer Bruce Gary. My roots are very much surf music. My first band was a surf band, and there was surf stomps. And I can show you, you know, a, a surf stomp is like a flam thing. It's like a, which is which is uh, the, basically he wanted it to be, you know, kind of, and I interjected the flam thing which gave it its own characteristic to it. Here it is, the only My Sharona rehearsal tape in existence. It's Burton's lick, of course. This is what we fueled everything off of, the main riff. We have been playing around locally for, for a couple of months, and there were a couple of girls that used to, actually three of them, we used to, uh, kind of affectionately call them the Nackettes, you know. They used to come down to hear us perform, and one of them was named Sharona. And my lead singer, Doug, had quite a crush on Sharona. I, I had to have her. It consumed me. <laughs> uh, she was my muse. She, she compelled me. Here again is Sharona Alpern. One time I went, and I remember, I think it was Burton or Doug or someone was like, should we play it, should we play it for her? And I uh, didn't even know what they were talking about. I was sitting on the couch. It could have been anything. It was a normal day like any other day. And then the next, the next memory I have, I was in my car thinking, did I just hear a song with my name in it? Did, was that my name in the song? And it was in my head. But uh, right away, I just, I couldn't believe I, that there was a song with my name in it. It was recorded at MCA Whitney Studios on Glendale Boulevard in uh, Glendale. It's not there anymore. We decided to record it there with Mike Chapman. We felt it was a, uh, better than doing it in Hollywood because it's not, there's no distractions there. It's like that studio's set in an area where there's really nothing else. So we were able to concentrate more in there. Here's producer Mike Chapman. But they, they played the song right there and then. And I said, well, stop. And they said, what, you don't like it? And I said, no, of course I like it. I said, that's the number one, absolutely. You've, you've got to know you have a number one song. You ready? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. He said start the tape. <laughs> I, I don't mean that in a sliding way. Uh, Mike's contribution was saying, I think the way you should record this 
album is as if you were playing your club set? Uh, probably my main contribution was to leave it alone, was to record it well and not mess around with it. Uh, and my job was to put it on tape and to make it sound the way it sounded when they did it live. Within months of their live debut, popular club gigs on the Sunset Strip, as well as guest jams with musicians such as Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, and Ray Manzarek, led to the band being the subject of a record label bidding war. The band was pursued by 10 record labels, but decided on going with Capitol Records. Here again is Burton. When we got our record deal and the record was made, everybody knew. I mean, everybody from the start just knew Sharon was the song. But there were some, you know, second guessers at the record company who were saying, well, you know, hard rock on the radio right now. And uh, they actually kind of did a little dance about maybe Sharona not being the first release, which was absurd, and we all knew it. So instead of saying, you don't know what you're talking about, we just kind of held our tongue and uh, because the song did its work for itself, you know. Here's Doug. They didn't release the single until two weeks after the album had been released. But the day the album was released to radio, my Sharona became the most added record as an album cut in the world. It went from, from nobody ever having heard it to being in heavy rotation in one day. It was a phenomenon. It was on every single minute, no matter where I went. The minute it was on the airplanes. Then I'd get off an airplane. I'd get in a limousine or a cab. It was in the limousine or cab. I'd get to the hotel. It was in the hotel. We would go on vacation. The top 40 band who was playing in the lobby or in the piano bar played my Sharona. You couldn't escape it. At one time, I would turn it off sometimes. I even think that they might have made it music in dentist's office or in the grocery stores without the words. I got the girl. Sharona did become my girlfriend. It took me a year, you know, after I wrote it. Took me a year. She was, she was, you know, very, very. She played very hard to get, and uh, but we became uh, good friends, and we lived together for th three and a half years. You know, having it become a hit again in the '90s was a remarkable thing. Getting to tour America with a whole new audience of young kids that didn't. No, it had been a hit 15 years earlier. That was remarkable. You know, and I still meet kids today, young people, you know, who were like 12 when it was a hit from Reality Bites, you know, and to them it's their youth. And, and there are people, you know, my age who it was their youth too because we all had that experience when, when it first happened. And, and now, I mean, people play it, I mean, you know, all over the place. They play it at sporting events. So I think because of the youthfulness of it, and because it's not so much restricted stylistically to the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, I just think it keeps reinventing itself. And I'm, for, and I'm happy about that, because it doesn't sound like it's, 19, you know, it's this particular year. It's got a real uh, timelessness about it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great work, as always, Greg. And what a story. 
And that song, well, once you hear it, you can't get it out of your head, whether you like it or not. It's stuck. And my goodness, to have a song written about you at that age. Doug Figer was 26, Sharona. Well, she was 17. She was my muse, because he ached. She compelled me, he said. Recorded in Glendale, California, not far from where my sister and dad and her husband live. My main contribution, said producer Mike Chapman, I left it alone. That's sometimes the hardest thing for a producer to do. The story of my Sharona, the story of a song, here on Our American Story. Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we love to tell stories about everything here including music and now Jesse brings us the story of legendary radio DJ Wolfman Jack Wolfman Jack we just got a report here that hundreds of people are just swarming around the manhole covers all over the city and climbing into them and a reliable source tells us that they are still trying to find the entrance to the studio where the Wolfman Jack show is taking place. <laughs> oh, gracious me. I, I think they found us. Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack was born Robert Weston Smith in Brooklyn, New York on January 21st, 1938. As a young teenager, he listened to the radio in his basement where he pretended to be a DJ. As a little kid, I always listened to this radio station. I was one of the, I was one of those kind of folks you call a radio freak, I guess. You know, I had transoceanic radio and a whole bunch of different other. You know, I listened to all the disc jockeys, different people, and copied styles, figured out how they communicated and what, why they made me feel good. And uh, I, I took all the good, positive things out of most of the, the greatest disc jockeys in the world. People like. Moondog, who's Alan Freed, you know. Hello, everybody. Hi, all. This is Alan Freed, the old king of the Moondoggers, and a hearty welcome to all our thousands of friends in northern Ohio, Ontario, Canada, western New York, western Pennsylvania, West Virginia. Big John R. from WLAC down in Nashville, Tennessee, playing that good rhythm and blues. This is John R. We're down south in Dixie. Horse Allen. From Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Horseman. Magnificent Montague. The Magnificent Montague, starring Monty Woolley. <laughs> These jocks would turn you around and flip you upside down. Magnificent Montague told me one time, if you ain't sweating, you ain't working. So I always remember that. So every time I'm on the radio, I'm sweating, baby. I'm working hard. But radio isn't exactly the easiest profession to break into. And like many of us who work in the business, Smith started out working as an intern. I uh, used to cut school and go hang out at the local black radio station. And I learned how to run the board and everything. And I was spitty then, you know, a gopher for the jocks. You know, I go down and they even let me, they even let me pick liquor up for them in the liquor store. I was only about 13 or 14 years old. And I ran all the errands for them. And they taught me what, what I had to know. And I hung around there, cut school all the time. And uh, my, my parents thought I was going to wind up to be a little, you know. I didn't know what the hell to do with me. Later, Smith attended the National Academy of Broadcasting in Washington, D.C. While going to classes at night, by day he supported himself as a door-to-door salesman. And although Smith was a high school dropout, he graduated broadcasting school at the top of his class. 
1961, Smith moved to Louisiana and started working at country music station KCIJ. I wanted everybody to love me. Although his show was successful and had many listeners, he was looking for something different. In 1963, it was in Shreveport that Bob Smith created the Wolfman Jack character. Well, you know that everything in entertainment is acting. Even singing is acting. Playing an instrument is acting. And if you want to be a good actor, you create a character for yourself. And then you act it out. You become that character. Now I have fully become the Wolfman character. It's taken me over. I mean, I can't get away from it anymore. And uh, before I used to be able to hide the, the bushes, you know. The character had always been in me. Because there was the hound from Buffalo. And there was Moondog. Wolfman. See, it all fits, you know what I mean? It was around this time that Bob Smith had the idea to get his new Wolfman Jack show on the powerful Mexican radio station XERF, a massive 250,000-watt station with a signal that covered the entirety of North America and beyond. Outside of Del Rio, Texas, in a little town of Coahuila, the state of Coahuila, the town of Acuna, Coahuila, Mexico. Now, this is a very powerful radio station on the AM band. Probably the most powerful commercial radio station ever, ever was. In America, anyway. Yeah, like when I go to Disneyland, you know, I never have any trouble in Frontierland. I never have any trouble in Futureland. But for some reason, I always get in trouble when I wind up in Fantasyland. Oh, no! crazy? <laughs> You're listening to the Wolfman Jack Show! Wolfman Jack's personality sent energy through the radio speakers and attracted the attention of millions of people all across North America on a radio station just south of the Mexican border where the FCC has zero authority. It was so powerful, this radio station, that you could take a fluorescent bulb and go outside and hold it up in the air, it would glow. A car would pull up to the radio station and the lights would stay on. They never used it during the daytime. See, during the daytime, that ionosphere came way down here, you know, so it didn't make no sense. Even with all that power, you'd only reach San Antonio, you know what I mean? They waited till the nighttime came, you know. <laughs> then they could scoot that sucker out all over the world. But when they turned it on during the daytime to test out the transmitter, birds would come flying towards it. Psh, boom. They'd go run out and grab it and cook it for supper. <laughs> really, they used to get these damn birds flying by the... T turn on the transmitter for a half hour. They'd have supper made, you know what I mean? A car driving from New York to Los Angeles would never lose the station, beaming out at 250,000 watts. Five times the U.S. limit could be picked up all over North America, and at night, as far away as Europe and the Soviet Union. If it's a new record, I'm going to play it. If it's an oldie, I'm going to play it. If it's a fresh artist nobody ever heard, I'm going to play it. That doesn't exist anymore. Great artists out there performing, people like Bonnie Raitt and Lyle Lovett and all these cats who played a good bluesy rock and roll country touch type thing, which is really the happening music. And nobody can put them together in one format. It's kind of like this guy went, no, this guy's country. We can't put him in a rock format. No, no, she's too country. She's too blue. No, can't put her. You know what I mean? It's unforgivable. These magnificent facilities are pumping puke out. They might as well be doing that over the air because and then people are listening and say, oh, listen to that. 
Oh, isn't that fun? You know what I mean? When we return, the story of Wolfman Jack continues right here on Our American Stories. Hello, who's this on the Wolfman Telephone? Hi, this is Frankie Valli, and the guy you're listening to is one of my best friends, Wolfman Jack. You got the Wolfman Jack! American stories, and we continue with the story of the one, the only, Wolfman Jack. <laughs> oh, telephone, where am I, my? Hello, who's this on the Wolfman telephone? Hello, this is Mick of Fleetwood Mac, reminding all my fans to listen to the Wolfman Jack show. Listen, it's good. Wolfman's mix of rowdy rock, verbal antics, and raw rhythm and blues began to make the news. His national popularity grew as stories began to appear in Time, Newsweek, Life, and City Newspapers, all asking the same questions. Who is Wolfman Jack? Where did he come from? And how did he get his hands on a Mexican radio station that could be heard all over the world at night? Because they would run preachers during the early part of the evening, up to around midnight. And then at midnight, they didn't know what the hell they would do. And they'd run country gospel, black gospel, they'd run all kinds of crazy stuff and after the midnight hour. So I wanted to go down to Del Rio to talk to the people who are running that station, see if I couldn't put this character Wolfman Jack on the air. So I showed up on the scene. And uh, the man who was running the station that time was a guy by the name of Arturo Gonzalez, the heaviest dude in that area. He was an international lawyer, self-made man. Became a lawyer through, you know, correspondence courses, man. And he made it on through, from, came over the border, mixer. now he owned Del Rio. And he owned Acuna, and he owned that radio station. So I had a meeting with him the next day. So me and my partner decided we'd go out and look at the radio station. Well, I had a brand new uh, Super 88, you know, one of those big Oldsmobile convertibles. I didn't want to take it across the border. I figured I wouldn't have anything left when I got back. So we got a cab driver to take us over there. And then we finally got over there. We, he took us to Boys Town, which is just... Red Light District. You know, <laughs> all the girls do their thing. So then we found another cab driver. We wanted to go out to see the station. He says, there's no roads to the station. I said, okay, well, take us out to the station. You put some money on him. The guy took us out. All of a sudden, we out there. Black as you can see. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face if you raised it. You know? We're driving through these sand dunes late at night. All of a sudden, out of the distance, See this little red light blinking like this. As we got closer, you could see it was a radio tower. And there was two buildings. One I found out was a building that housed the generator to supply the power to the radio station. The generator was big as a locomotive in a train, you know. I walk in, there's this great big transmitter. Looks from like out of space, you know. Big, beautiful thing. In front of it, there's little coal things sitting. These Mexican dudes, you know, cooking goat meat in front of the transmitter. One guy polishing the damn thing. 
I go to the back where the studio is, having this meeting. And while they're having the meeting, Reverend Jessup is on the air, preaching, you know, yes, God, if you send in $25 right now, the Lord's magic number, Reverend Jessup going to send you a personally signed prayer cloth for me. You know, that, that's going on in the background. So I walk in, I meet this cat by the name of Mario Alfaro, who spoke English. None of the other people spoke English. I could communicate with Mexican folks real well. Even though I don't speak it, I, I communicate with them. But this guy spoke English. And I found out what they were doing. They wanted to appoint their own interventor. Because the one that was appointed by Gonzalez when he was pulling his deal with the preachers were playing bad head games on the boys who were running the radio station. First of all, they weren't paying them half the time. And then they would come in, if somebody didn't like what was going on, they'd come in and beat the hell out of them, you know? So they wanted to get rid of this guy. And here comes the wolf man on the scene with a pocket full of money, my buddy with me, my Starfire Oldsmobile right across the border. What do you guys need? I got it all here. I started taking out the money and laying it on the table. Immediately, they loved me. I laid out about $1,000 in $100 bills. And I said, I want you all to have one. And that'll show that you can trust me. Well, they were amazed. So immediately, I took control of the radio station. From then on, it was a process of calling the preachers and getting the money coming to me. I sent the boys off to Mexico City to get a new interventor to take over the radio station. In the meantime, I walked in on the situation and took over this radio station. Here I was going to present this tape to Arturo Gonzalez to put Wolfman Jack on the air. And here I was on the air. The next night, of course, I went on the air as Wolfman Jack. And that's how Wolfman Jack was born. By 1966, Robert Smith was now living as Wolfman Jack 24-7 had been broadcasting on XERF for nearly five years. Major music artists such as Todd Rundegren, Leon Russell, Freddie King, and The Guess Who all produced chart-topping hits written about the Wolfman. By the early 70s, he was living in Beverly Hills, being heard all over the world and making a lot of money. Maybe too much money. Because in 1970, without warning, the Mexican government took possession of XERF. And suddenly... Wolfman Jack was off the air. Clap for the Wolfman. He gonna reach your record high. Clap for the Wolfman. You gonna dig him till the day you die. But the Wolfman got to work and capitalized on his fame by editing down his old show tapes and selling them to radio stations everywhere, becoming one of the very first syndicated rock and roll programs in America. And now, here's Wolfman Jack. You know, I'm a real audio video freak, and I tried playing with a lot of video games in my time, even before they were invented as I was a real fan. And comparing them all, well, I come to one conclusion. None are as exciting as Harry Carey video games. They have the best picture, the best color, and above all, they're more violent than any other. Choose from the catalog of 456 different games, including Sidewalk Suicide, Machines That Mangle People, and my favorite, Mass Destruction of Everything on the Face of the Earth. Hey, when it comes to video games, don't be fooled. Commit to Harry Carey! <laughs> At his peak, Wolfman Jack was heard on more than 2,000 radio stations in 53 countries. 
1972, he was hired to be the announcer, interviewer, and co-host of NBC TV's late-night music series, The Midnight Special. In 1973, he appeared on the film American Graffiti as himself, directed by George Lucas. He said, somebody wants to see you over Universal, they want you to do a movie. I said, okay. So I ran over there, and who's sitting behind the desk? George Lucas. I said, what's the matter, man? You need money, right, to do this film? You want me to contribute to the film? He said, no, Wolfman, we want you to be in the movie. I said, oh, isn't that wonderful? And then I found out, he gave me the script, I read the movie. I knew it was a hit because it was Americana. It was what we do in the evening time. You listen to a great disc jockey, play great rock and roll records, you meet guys, you meet ladies, and you flash your car around, and you do the best thing, the most fun in the world. It's a shame a lot of kids can't do that nowadays. His broadcasts tie the film together. And the character played by Richard Dreyfus catches a glimpse of the mysterious Wolfman in this pivotal scene. Are you the Wolfman? <sighs> no, man, I'm not the Wolfman. Who's this on the Wolfman telephone? Diane. How you doing, Diane? Right. That's the Wolfman. Kill me. He's on tape. <laughs> the man is on tape. Well, uh, where where is he now? I mean, uh, where does he work? The Wolfman comes in here occasionally, bringing tapes, you know, to check up on me and whatnot. Yeah. And the places he talks about that he's been, the things he's seen. And there's a great big beautiful world out there. And here I sit, sucking on popsicles. Wanting to leave? I'm not a young man anymore. And the Wolfman gave me my start in the business, and I like it. Tell you what, if I can possibly do it tonight, I'll try to relay this dedication in and get it on the air for you later on. That would be terrific. Really. Thanks. Yes, man. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Really, I appreciate it. On July 1st, 1995, Wolfman Jack died of a heart attack at his home in Belvedere, North Carolina. <laughs> That day, he finished broadcasting what would be his last Wolfman Jack radio show from the Hard Rock Cafe in Washington, D.C. He was very anxious to get home, as he'd been on the road for several days on a promotional book tour for his autobiography. After a flight from D.C. and a limousine ride from the airport, Wolfman was happy to be home. He walked up the driveway, went inside his house, hugged his wife, and dropped dead. This is our American Stories. Wolfman Jack! X-E-R-B! <laughs> oh, this is Wolfman Jack Show, baby! Hope all you people taking down all your pictures, cause we gonna be playing some of that loud soft war music, baby!
This is Our American Stories, and this one is unusual. I want to read a quote from John Gardner, the former Secretary of Health under Lyndon Johnson, the President of the United States in the 60s. Quote, the society which scorns excellence in plumbing as a humble activity and tolerates shoddiness in philosophy because it is an exalted activity, will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy. Neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water. This is the unspoken story about the small, unmentionable seat in the corner of our lives, or said another way, this is how we have been shaped by our grossest national product. Here's Greg Hengler. Elvis died in one. And Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, was born on one. Although we use them every day, most of us know very little about toilets. Here's author of The Porcelain God, Julie Horin, and public health historian, David Rossner. Not only did civilization start with the onset of writing, but it also started with man actually coming and getting uh, a hold of his sanitation needs. Creation of sanitary systems were in some sense the basis for creating great cities and great communities. The earliest written reference to the disposal of human waste is more than 3,600 years old and is found in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 23, 12-13, God instructs the Hebrews to do their exodus in a holy fashion. You are to have a place outside the camp. Go there to relieve yourself. You are to have a digging tool in your equipment. When you relieve yourself, dig a hole with it and cover up your excrement. For hundreds of thousands of years before this was written, Human beings simply squatted when they had the urge to go. As the world became more populated, disposal of human waste became a bit more difficult. In ancient Egypt, cities began to spring up from the desert. By 2500 BC, the Egyptians solved the waste disposal dilemma, constructing bathrooms with latrines which were flushed by hand with buckets of water. The latrines emptied into earthenware pipes many of which are still functional today. The Roman Empire also had a public sewage system. Here's David Rossner and sociologist Stephen Seufer. Rome was not built in a day, but it was built around its water supply system and its ability to get rid of its material without polluting itself or polluting people downstream. Their development of the bathroom was incredible. Middle-class Romans in their homes were able to hook up a private bathroom to the public sewer system that Rome had developed and actually have the waste carried away to the main sewage disposal plant. Like Rome's private lavatories, their public latrines, which were seat holes carved into stone benches, were erected over channels of water that came from distant mountain streams that flowed through aqueducts for over 200 miles. Here's poet Eva Upglin visiting some Roman restroom ruins. This was a communal privy. You'd have sat here, the seat has disappeared, and your waste would have dropped into this drainage channel here. The water flushed the waste away, nobody had to touch it, and of course, as it dropped into the water, that minimised smell. Now then, this second water channel running in front of us here was what you would have used to wash yourself afterwards. You would have had a stick with a piece of sponge on the end, 
dip that in the water, wash behind yourself, thus giving rise to the phrase, the importance of not getting hold of the wrong end of the stick. But the privy, which takes its name from the Latin word for privacy, couldn't save the Roman Empire. And when it finally fell, the water-fed toilet fell into the lavatorial dark ages, clogging up toilet innovation for more than a thousand years. During these medieval times, castle dwellers would strengthen their defenses by dumping waste into their moats. The raw sewage discouraged invaders from crossing. Here's physicist Charles Panetti, author of Extraordinary Origins. The only thing that you had indoors for the next, really, a thousand years was the chamber pot, which was really something of a horror story. It was a convenience in one way when you needed to go in the middle of the night. At nighttime was the time when people would dump the contents of this uh, chamber pot outside their windows into the streets below. And the idea that a man walks on the left side of the female dates back to this time. It was polite for him to get hit by the contents of the chamber pot and to spare the woman. In the 16th century, the flushing toilet made its debut in England. The first nearly modern toilet was made for Queen Elizabeth I in 1596. It was made by her godson, Sir John Harrington. He made it to get back in her good graces because she had banished him from court for using foul language. He came up with a really clever device. It had a tank at the top, it had a valve you opened to let water down, and there was a trap door that you could close after you used the toilet. Harrington's primitive toilet had a critical design flaw. One, the flushing sound was ear-piercing. And, number two, the pipe beneath the bowl was vertical. Waste went straight down, and sewer smells came straight up. The queen complained that fumes came up from the cesspool, uh, but it was a problem that her godson was never able to solve. You realize how bad the situation was if you look at the Palace of Versailles. A fortune was spent in constructing it. It had these wonderful hall of mirrors, elaborate chandeliers, and you might have a thousand people being entertained, eating and drinking copiously, but where did they go to the bathroom? There was not a single bathroom in the entire elaborate palace. And the answer is, they went in the stairwells. And one of the reasons the French applied so much perfume during that period was to overcome all of the indoor odors from people relieving themselves. Outside Versailles, people were relieving themselves in indoor cesspits. They were simply benches or seats perched over holes lined with wood, stone, or brick. Their main drawback, aside from the smell, was that you had to pay nightmen called scavengers wielding a bucket and a shovel to clean them out and carry them on a horse-drawn cart to local streams and rivers. This is why it pays to be upstream. And if you ventured into town and nature called, a man called a Johnny offered his customers privacy. He wore a large black cape and carried a chamber pot. The customer would pay a half a cent and squat over the pot while Johnny covered him with the large cape. Fast forward to 18th century America. Colonists modified the cesspit by taking it outside and constructing a small wooden shack over it. The outhouse was born. They would place the um, outhouses far enough from the house where there would not be uh, problems with smell or with seeping into the water supply of the house. 
1775, while America was embroiled in the Revolutionary War, back in the mother country, another revolution was taking place. British watchmaker Alexander Cumming filed for the first ever patent on a toilet with a twist. Literally, the pipe beneath Cumming's toilet bowl curved backward in a distinctive S-shaped bend. This allowed water to pool in the U-shaped part of the pipe, cutting off the explosive and stinky sewer gas from below. It actually is the modern toilet because we still have that water separating us from the cesspool today. Long before President Lyndon Johnson held meetings with Robert Kennedy while sitting on the John, the toilet played a leading role in governing our nation. America's first owner of this modern toilet was Thomas Jefferson, who had three of these elite oddities installed at Monticello. By the dawn of the 19th century, one important factor was still missing. Without working sewers, waste was just too big a load for the cesspits of the city and seeped deep into the ground. And when we come back, more on the story, the history of the toilet with Greg Hengler here on Our American Stories. our American stories and that was Jeff Daniels in the infamous toilet scene from 1994's Dumb and Dumber. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the unspoken story of the toilet. By the dawn of the 19th century, one important factor was still missing. Without working sewers, waste was just too big a load for the cesspits of the city and seeped deep into the ground. Here's David Rossner and scientist Adam Hart Davis. If you have a privy and it's uh, not too far away from your pump, you're going to have a real problem. You may literally be drinking the excrement that you're dumping the day before. Absolutely disgusting. And when they had drains, the drains simply went out into the street. So all the streets were running with sewage. Toilet technology could only go so far until engineers could construct water delivery systems like the Roman aqueducts, able to service entire cities. In 1842, contending with the sudden rise of population due to an influx of immigrants, New York City paved the way. The system's designers harnessed a fundamental law of nature, that water always flows downhill. That water in your city follows the same principle. Water is pumped to the top of giant towers that are linked to pipes beneath the streets. Since the tower is higher than the water's final destination, Gravity maintains pressure and forces the water through the pipes to your tap and toilet. After water is used, gravity is rendered once again and carries it away through sewer pipes angled downhill. During the 19th century, more and more cities followed New York's example. At the turn of the 20th century, 
plumbing was an exploding business in America, much like web search engines are today. And by the 1930s, America's entire urban population had access to running water. In 1854, a 10-year-old boy, John Michael Kohler, was brought to America from Austria by his father. This boy would become the Steve Jobs of toilet technology. With the purchase of a majority interest in Union Iron and Steel Foundry in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, 19 years later, he founded Kohler Company and successfully traversed the burgeoning sanitation market. The father of six developed his company into one of the few family-owned businesses still in existence dating from the turn of the century. About three-quarters of feces is water, and 10% is undigested food, but the remaining 15% is all bacteria, billions of them. And it's these bacteria that give feces its distinctive smell. Most of the bacteria are harmless and spend their lives processing the food inside our intestines, but some are lethal. Feces contain all the fiber that we can't digest that comes in the breakfast cereal and in fresh fruits and vegetables and so on. They contain the remains of dead blood cells, which is why it's brown, because that's what the remains are. It's stuff called bilirubin, which comes from broken down blood cells, and it contains enormous quantities of bacteria. And if you ingest those bacteria, if you eat them, then you're going to get very ill. Historically, the two great diseases that are associated with human waste are, of course, cholera. People can be perfectly healthy in the morning and be dead, literally dead in the evening. And uh, typhoid, another horrendous disease that is terrifying in its various aspects in that it creates terrible welts and rashes and also terrible fevers and sickness among anyone who comes into contact with it. Between 1831 to 1832, 50,000 Brits died from cholera. In Paris, cholera killed 18,000 in a single summer. The U.S. was next. Cholera had been moving east from Asia into Europe. In 1832, it had reached Paris and it had reached London, and it was very, very serious disease. We never expected to hit here. And then 1832, it hit Boston, it hit Philadelphia. More than 150,000 Americans died during the two cholera pandemics between 1832 and 1849. With the help of the new toilet, the westernized world was drowning in its own excrement. The smell, germs, and death finally led politicians to an effective solution. High-capacity sewers that carried the waste far away from town. They're sort of monuments to excrement, if you like. And uh, I've been down the sewers, and it's absolutely amazing how well they were built. The stuff running through them is not fun, but the sewers themselves are utterly brilliant. As the astronauts were to be the heroes of the 20th century, in the 19th century, toilet inventors were the giants that walked among men. The key innovation was a water siphoning system to force waste through the base of the bowl with unparalleled efficiency. What worked then still works now. Once the toilet bowl's flush handle is pulled, a valve inside the holding tank called the flapper opens up and water drains quickly into the bowl through a series of angled holes under the rim. The man who is often credited with inventing this flushing wonder probably had little to do with it. Thomas Crapper. Yes, he really existed. 
What he did patent is the pull chain that worked in conjunction with a valveless cistern, thus decreasing noise and preserving water. Due to his toilet innovations, the Victorian-era plumbing magnate earned himself a place in toilet history, if only by selling lots of them. During World War I, when American soldiers were stationed over in Britain, they would come across a lot of these toilets, and they started the euphemism of, I'm going to the crapper, and they based it on what they saw on the toilets, which said Thomas Crapper and company. And the John is derived from the toilets installed at Harvard University in 1735, which were emblazoned with the manufacturer's name, Reverend Edward Johns. While Crapper and Johns were making a name for themselves, two enterprising brothers were busy inventing the toilet's most essential accessory. Although the Chinese invented paper in the second century, it took them more than 1,200 years to get around to using it in the bathroom. They finally did in 1391 AD, but it was strictly for the use of emperors. Where did that leave commoners? People generally used their hands, and, in, and currently in many uh, countries around the world where paper is a premium, people continue to use their left hand. That is why when you travel to uh, parts of the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and Asia, you won't find any left-handed people. Everyone there is right-handed because the left hand is considered unclean. In medieval Europe, commoners used hay, grass, and plant leaves to clean themselves. In early America, Millions used corn cobs. The cobs were softened first by prolonged soaking in water. The corn cobs were generally given to the pigs to eat, and then when the pigs were finished with them and there was just the cob left, they would take those and use them to wipe themselves. So there was very little waste. When mass-published newspapers and catalogs became commonplace in the 19th century, Americans finally said goodbye to corn cobs and hello to Sears Roebuck. People would take the catalog, hang it in their outhouses, and they would read from it while they were doing their business. And at the finish of the business, they would tear off a piece and use it to wipe themselves. Things changed in the 20s. Unfortunately, Sears started using glossy print paper. The absorbing benefits of the catalog kind of lost it. So you didn't see so many people using the Sears catalog as toilet paper from then on. By that time, however, consumers had another option, real toilet paper. Here's Ken Fishberg, author of Toilet Paper Encyclopedia, and Charles Panetti. There was a man named Joseph Gaetti. He was a New Yorker, and he had a paper business in New Jersey. He was the first person who actually took paper, cut it into sheets, into small sheets, and sold it through drugstores as therapeutic paper. The people who bought them thought the paper was too nice and ended up using it as stationery, writing on it, and still using their catalog. In 1879, entrepreneurs Irvin and brother Clarence Scott began selling rolled toilet paper. It was made from tissue paper bought from other manufacturers, which they cut up, rolled, and repackaged. Although there have been some improvements over the years, today's toilet tissue is made basically the same way. In the 1940s, Scott's competitor, Northern Paper Mills of Green Bay, Wisconsin, began using chemicals to completely dissolve wood fibers and refer to their toilet paper as splinter-free. Today, nearly 2.4 billion people around the world don't have toilets. 
Nearly 150,000 people die every year from cholera. That's more than AIDS. In 2007, the prestigious British Medical Journal's 11,000 medical experts and readers, mostly doctors, voted modern sanitation as the number one medical advance since 1840. Not antibiotics, not vaccines, but toilets and clean water. The average human life expectancy increased nearly 35 years over the span of the 20th century. Roughly 30 of those 35 years are attributable to improvements in sanitation. Unless you count NASA's space toilets, the post-war era brought mostly incremental shifts in shapes and colors and shade carpet seat covers. While Harrington's godmother Elizabeth I might be baffled by a 21st century porcelain throne, Queen Victoria would easily recognize the seat upon which her great-great-granddaughter, Elizabeth II, does her sovereign business. Harry, are you in there? In this modern Game of Thrones... Be right out! We're all privileged members of the same royal family. I hope you're not using the toilet, it's broken! I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And what a story. And by the way, we learned about this problem in cities too when we were discussing the evolution of the automobile. Horse poop all over the streets of New York, Philadelphia, Boston. You'll learn this only here on Our American Story. Not